29 to 31, Hebrews uh, chapter 11, please. chapter 11 verse 29 hear the word of God by faith the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land but the Egyptians when they attempted to do the same were drowned by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome uh, to the spies now we're back to Hebrews 11 after a brief fast forward last Sunday into chapter uh, 13 will get there, I suppose, by and by. But uh, you know that this theme of Hebrews chapter 11 is, is, is this theme of faith. If we're to live by faith, the danger of those to whom he's writing uh, is this idea of drifting away, that some are drifting away. They're not paying attention to what they had heard. They're not living it through as they once did. So he has a concern that they may be drifting away. So he's calling them back to live by faith. It's taken him 10 chapters to get here. And now that he's here, uh, he wants them to do just that. You'll notice at the end of chapter 10, he, he um, brings this to us. Um, verse 38, he says in chapter 10, But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And so living by faith is crucial uh, in order to preserve one's soul. Uh, Jesus said, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. And so there needs to be, must be, will be, for those who are truly Christians, this perseverance to the end, living through life uh, by faith. And so he begins to lay this out for us as he opens up chapter 11. You remember he gives us a definition of faith. That faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Therefore, when we're living by faith, it means that we haven't received everything that we've been promised, at least in its fullness, and we don't yet see everything that we know for certain is true and will be given, because God has promised it. Uh, in fact, the way that uh, the Apostle Paul puts, puts this uh, idea of, of hope in Romans chapter 8, is like this, verse 24, he writes, For in this hope we are saved. Now hope is, is uh, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So, so we're being called to live by faith. God has made promises to us, vows to us. We've seen some of this. We've experienced some of what he's promised but not in its fullness. You know, this isn't glory yet. This isn't the new earth. This isn't the new body. This isn't the new life. Everything doesn't reflect Christ yet. He's promised all that to us. And now he says, what I want you to do is live by faith. So we ask the question, how do we do that? The author of Hebrews says, let me give you some illustrations. Let me give you some examples. Abel gave sacrifice by faith, trusting that God would receive it because it was the kind of sacrifice that was pleasing to God. So he brought it by faith. Uh, Enoch walked with God. That pleased God. He walked by faith, so God took him. Noah lived by faith. God gave him the word that a, a judgment flood was coming, but that he and his family would be saved if he built this ark. So by faith, he built that ark. Um, um, Abraham 
was called by God to leave his home country and to go to a country that God was taking him that said, this will be yours. So Abraham believed God and therefore left his home country and by faith went to a new country. And even though he didn't ever come to possess that new country, he continued to live by faith, trusting that he had seen a better country, that he'd receive a better country even after the grave. Uh, God had promised to... Abraham and Sarah, a child, and even though they looked at each other, that is by sight, by what they could see, they both looked at each other and said, this is never going to happen. We're too old to conceive a child. By faith, they conceived a child. And that child was Isaac, the son of promise. And even though Isaac was given to them as the son of promise, when God called Abraham to sacrifice him, ending, it appeared, all of the hope that he would have, the scripture says that Abraham hoped against hope, He trusted that God, if Isaac was really the son of promise, uh, that God would raise him from the dead. And so by faith, he went up on the mountain to sacrifice his son. You know how that turned out. He didn't need to. God provided a substitute. But still, it was an act of faith on the part of Abraham. Moses' parents, when Moses was born, uh, even though they knew that the king had said that no uh, Hebrew child should live, Hebrew boy should live, they hid Moses by faith, not being afraid of the king's edict. No doubt part of the king's edict was that if you do harbor a little Hebrew boy, you yourself will be punished, perhaps even killed. But they weren't afraid because they lived by faith, trusting that God had directed them to hide their son to keep him. And even Moses himself lived by faith. Even though he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter, he gave all of that up. Because he made a calculation by faith and said, experiencing, living out the reproach of Christ, that in suffering for the sake of Christ, that was of greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. So he gave all of that up. And even when there was a death uh, threat against him from the king, uh, he didn't fear the king. Because... He was able to see him who is invisible. That is, he put his eyes on God, not upon the king. He said, God is with me, therefore, I don't need to be afraid. And even then on that fateful night, when God says that the firstborn will be killed, but Moses, if you and the people take this unblemished one-year-old lamb and kill it and take its blood and put it on your threshold and stay there, the angel of death will pass over and your firstborn will be spared. By faith, Moses and all the people did that in hope, trusting, assured of, certain that in the morning they would wake up and their firstborn would be alive. So the author of Hebrews is saying, now, this is what faith is all about. It's living like that. It's trusting in the promise of God. It's trusting in what God has said. It's being certain that what he has said is more certain than what you see with your eyes. If there's a conflict between what he's promised and what you see, you should trust what he's promised, not what you see. Because you should see him by faith who is invisible, God and his promise. And he will bring to pass all that he's promised. You're to live like that. Well, now we come in these uh, verses that I read uh, this morning, 29 to 31, uh, just to, to, to three different faith incidents, this crossing of the Red Sea, 
this Jericho destruction, the walls tumbling down, and Rahab, who's part of that as well. Uh, and these three different incidents uh, go together in a number of different ways. Number one, because, because they're sort of in the same time frame. They're after the Israelites left Egypt and before they settled in the land. So they kind of catch that historical time, even though there could be, and there's at least 40 years uh, in between uh, the events from one to the other, beginning to the end. But also they're kind of linked through this woman Rahab. Linked through Rahab because, because the sequence goes like this, that the Israelites go through the Red Sea and the armies of Pharaoh are drowned. The word of that gets out and makes it all the way to Jericho. And even 40 years after the, after the event, when the Hebrews get there, this woman, Rahab, who's a prostitute, fears God. She hears about that, heard about that, and casts her faith with God rather than with her own people. Now, what she would see with her eyes would be these couple of spies, and we'll get into this in a minute, who came to spy out the land. And she would see the great army that Jericho had and all the walls that kept it fortified. And she would say, I'm going to cast my lot with the God who rules these ex-slaves who've been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, dying off, uh, over all of this, because he's the God of heaven and earth. And then, because these spies live and they go back to tell Joshua, who brings then the people and follow God's command about how they're to take the city, the walls fall. So you see they're kind of intertwined. And they're also related like this. That none of these things could possibly have happened in the strength of human beings. The Red Sea could have never been parted. The Egyptian army could have never been defeated. Rahab, this prostitute, living in the middle of a city that was under a curse from God, could never have been spared. And that city could have never fallen into the hands of the Hebrews. That's very important, all of that. Now, all of this is pretty common to us. I mean, even if you didn't grow up in the church, you, you know about the Red Sea incident. I mean, it's just, it's just sort of a, it's almost an idiom in, in English about, about the impossible happening or something like that. I mean, we, we think about that all, the, you know, it's raised in various contexts and various speeches throughout history. It's alluded to and so forth as, a, as an image, an illustration of, of something, the impossible happening. Uh, we know the story of the walls of Jericho falling down and all of that. That's, that's, that's common in our culture. We understand that. Rahab may be a little less well-known, but certainly known uh, uh, to people who've gone to church for a while. Very common things, but we mustn't put them out of our minds because they're so common. I don't know about you, but, but when these Sunday school stories kind of pop up, we think, oh yeah, I learned about that when I was two or five or seven or whatever, and, and it seems like it's old stuff or childish stuff, but really it's crucial in the life of, of, our, of our history. This is our history, the history of our people, because we're connected as children of Abraham by faith. We're connected to everything that took place beforehand. So turn quickly uh, to Exodus in chapter 
13 and verse 17. You know the situation. The the Israelites have been uh, in Egypt, enslaved. Uh, Moses returns, comes back, the ten plagues. And then they're released finally by Pharaoh. So Exodus 13, verse 17 says this. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. He knew their hearts. He said, they're a little faint-hearted. If I take them the quick way, the shortcut, the most direct route, uh, there's enemies along the way. Now, my suspicion is God was thinking, I'll protect them, but they won't believe me. Uh, and so, so if they're that close, when trouble comes, they'll go back home pretty quickly. And, or at least want to. So I won't tempt them with that. I won't take them that direction. Verse 18, but God led the people around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And I'm thinking, thank you very much. Uh, basically, he says, I, I want to get a little farther away from Egypt before the trouble comes. Because then they won't be able to go back. But the point is that God led them in this direction. It was no accident that they ended up at this Red Sea having to cross it. Not only that... In the mystery of God's sovereign work, it was no accident that Pharaoh moved against the people even after they had left. Chapter 14. In verse 4. It says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and all the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And so God is saying, I'm, I'm going to move in some way, I don't know, I don't have an explanation for this, just a declaration of it. In some way, God moved in the heart of Pharaoh so that he would come after uh, the Israelites. Now, he probably didn't have to do a whole lot. Pharaoh had that kind of a heart anyway. Just the very fact that God had delivered the people, just the very fact that thoughts would come into Pharaoh's mind thinking, I've just lost all of our slaves, all of our workforce is gone, all of our cheap labor is out of here. Uh, I've got to go get them. And if not, I'm going to go kill them because I'm angry. And so in all of that, uh, those thoughts coming into Pharaoh's mind, God used, God worked in the midst of all that. God may even brought the thoughts, hardened the heart. And so Pharaoh comes after the people. So all of this is orchestrated. All of this is set up by God. He took the people there. He brought Pharaoh there. And there the conflict happens. And he's going to do for them, for the Israelites, precisely what they and Every follower of God needs, and that is to experience the glory of God, to see him at work, a great gift. And I think such glimpses, such experiences of the glory and the greatness of God only come to us when we're scared to death, when we've reached a point where we're Utterly, utterly afraid. Utterly, utterly at the end of ourselves. Knowing completely that we're at his mercy utterly. That there's nothing that we can do. And if he doesn't do something, we're really sunk. And so you can get this picture. And it's a real picture. A million people, a million Israelites. They've been, at least a million Israelites. They've been enslaved. Uh, so, so they're not really ready for battle. The scripture says when they left Egypt, they were in, in sort of military form, meaning that's how they marched out. But they weren't in military shape in order to fight anybody. And even if they were, the Egyptian army was the best. 
They had all the latest technology. They had everything that they possibly needed in order to be a great army. And so they come after in full force against these ex-slaves. And there they are. And they've got them cornered. They can't go across the sea. It's just there's no bridge. There's no boat. There's nothing to get them across the sea. They don't even have a helicopter. And so uh, here they are. And this great army is right here. And so what are they going to do? Now, notice chapter 14, Exodus uh, verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not. You got to love Moses. <laughs> you know, you got to love the guy because, you know, he wasn't, a, he wasn't very pastoral. You know, he's got people shaking their boots and rightly so as they're seeing with their eyes what is taking place. And so Moses says, well, here, just don't be afraid. Right. Stand firm. But then here he says, and see the salvation of God. You see, at that moment in time, when they can do nothing, when they're at their weakest, most vulnerable point, what Moses is expecting to see is he's saying, listen, don't see the uh, Egyptian army. What I want you to see, what I want you to look for, what I want you to expect, what I want you to anticipate is the salvation that God will bring you, the deliverance, the rescue that God will bring you. When you're in that spot, what you should be anticipating, what you should be looking for is not the enemy that's staring you down, down the face, but you should be looking for the deliverance that God will bring. That's your expectation. And so that's what he gives to them. Don't be afraid. Stand firm in faith, trusting God, and look for this deliverance that he will bring. Now, you know what happens. You know that Moses holds out his rod. And again, I don't, even have, I don't have words to describe this. I can only declare it to you, but this river opened up. Two big walls of water on either side. And then, what seems to me to be equally miraculous, is that the, the bed dried up. I mean, that, that would, that's amazing. Um, and so it dried up sufficient for all of these people, million, million people or so, to go across. It's a lot of people. If a million people walked across, you know, the lawn at your house, it would be messy uh, after a while. And so just think of this. I mean, that's how it always prepared. And they did that by faith. And you say, well, what kind of faith would that take? I mean, after seeing all that, I think that if I'm midway in this dry riverbed and I'm looking on either side of me of all this water sort of just stacked up there, I'm nervous, uh, you know. I, I'm not sure. That's faith. I've got to believe that God's going to be able to sustain that uh, as you're going through there. It isn't, this isn't just sort of easy, I don't think, for them. I mean, yeah, they're scared, so part of that nervous energy gets them rushing across, I'm sure. But it's going to take time. It's going to be a while. You're not going to be the first one across, probably. There's going to be others that go before you. Maybe the end of the line. And when you're end of the line, you're thinking, okay, just another minute, just another five, you know, to get me through here. So by faith in God, moving across. Now, something very interesting happens next. And that is that finally the Egyptians... See what's going on. You see, God had taken that pillar of cloud and he had moved it rather than being in front of the Israelites to behind them, to protect them. But then that's lifted. So the Egyptians see that and then they go to do exactly the same thing that the Israelites did, which is go across on this dry bed with his water stacked on their sides. And then they get out in there and God messes with their wheels and then... Uh, they get scared, begin to retreat, and the walls and the walls of water come in upon them, and they're drowned. 
same action going across this river. Two different results. Why? Because one group did it by faith and one group didn't. Going by faith got them through. Trusting in their chariots and horses, trusting in their own strength, they forgot about how they were getting into this whole thing and they were subsequently destroyed. Verse 14 of Exodus 14 gives the solution to all of this. It says, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Now, that's a great expression in the Old Testament. The Lord will fight for you. We see it coming up all over the place. God continues to remind his people that I'll fight for you. Now, in different contexts, and different ways, God does fight. Sometimes he fights for them by them using ordinary means. They go into battle, equipped for battle. And if you looked at the picture of that, you guys, you've got two uh, armies fighting against each other, both equipped for battle. But the Israelites win at the end of all of that. Who gets the credit for their victory? God does. Because he says, listen, I know you, you had your swords out. But when I'm fighting for you and you're using your sword, one of you can slay 10,000. See, Because I'm with you and I'm moving all of that. So even though you've got your sword at your side and even though you may have a horse and a chariot, don't trust that. Trust me. And anytime Israel would trust itself and trust its own weaponry, they would lose. So it wasn't about how much you had. It was about God being with you and God fighting for you. Remember David and Goliath. You remember that scene. You remember the situation that Goliath is making all of these, these threats against the, the, God of, the, the armies of Israel. And David, little David, uh, shepherd boy, didn't know anything about anything at that point in time. Uh, and he comes up and he says, well, I'll fight him. And, and you marvel at his courage. But it wasn't really courage, it was faith. Faith gave him the courage because he knew who God was. And he began to listen to the threats of Goliath. And he says, Goliath, you don't know what you're doing. You're not threatening this group of men here. You're threatening the Lord of hosts. You're threatening God Almighty. So you come to me with a sword and a bow and a belt and all of these things. But I'm just going to come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And you're doomed. And he was. Jehoshaphat, king, found himself in a valley with uh, armies on every corner, enemies ready to descend upon him and kill him. Scripture said that he was afraid, so he turned and sought the Lord. And in turning and seeking the Lord, he began to pray and began to talk about God. This is Second Chronicles chapter 20. And he began to say, God, aren't you the God of heaven and earth? Aren't you the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Aren't you the God that brought us here? Aren't you the God who made promises to us? Help us. And so then the prophet later comes, uh, quickly comes to, to, uh, to Jehoshaphat and says, Jehoshaphat, don't be afraid, don't worry. The battle's not yours, it's God's. And then the prophet says, now, tomorrow, go and face them. If I'm Jehoshaphat, I'm saying, if it's God's battle, let him do it himself. You know, he can go up and face them. Oh, thank you very much, I'm just going to stay here. But, but that wasn't God's plan at that moment. He said, no, you go and face them. You stand before them. And the way that he faced them was with, essentially, the choir. He says, I want you to sing. And when they sang, the armies turned against each other, and they were defeated. Nehemiah's situation. Nehemiah was called by God to build the walls around Jerusalem in a miraculous way. And he did that, but there were enemies that didn't want the walls around Jerusalem 
to be rebuilt. And so when those enemies came and Nehemiah prayed, he went to the people and he said two things to them. He said, number one, remember the Lord. He said, I want you to refocus. What you're remembering, what you're thinking about now are all these enemies. I want you to remember the Lord. He is the creator of all that is. He is God Almighty. And then later he said, I want you to to think of this. I want you to put your sword on your side knowing that God will fight for you. That your sword will be more powerful because God will fight for you. I want you to remember that. So the same thing was taking place here. God was fighting for his people. They were completely weak. There's no way they could win. Uh, But in faith, they walked through and their enemies, who didn't live by faith, were drowned. Second event, you know this one too. Uh, After the Israelites get through the wilderness, that are going to enter the land. In order to do that, they have to take Jericho. It's right strategic. So God says, I'm going to give it into your hands. Joshua sends a couple of spies out. Uh, They hook up with Rahab, who's a prostitute. And you may say, that doesn't sound very good. Spies are going to get into trouble. But it's likely in those days that if you were a spy, uh, the best thing to do when you went into another land was to go find a house of prostitution. Because it was always open and nobody asked any questions. Uh, and you could hide there. And so they did, and they went in there. Well, they were seen, and so uh, someone came to the king and said, there are spies from these Hebrews, and so they found out that Rahab had them in her place, so they went there. Perhaps it was just a common thing to go to houses of prostitution when the spies came in. And so they went there, and they said to her, you know, give us the spies. And she, of course, you remember, said they're not here. And then she told them where to go to be safe. And then she made this request of them. She said, listen, I I know who your God is. He's the God of heaven and earth. He's the Lord of glory. I've heard what's happened. We know what's happened, what happened at the Red Sea when the Egyptian army was drowned. And so here's what I want. Since I've helped you, will you spare me and my family when the destruction comes? When you come to take Jericho... Will you spare me and my family? And they said, yes. And she said, well, they said, take this, take a red scarlet cord and hang it out your window. We'll know that that's where you are. We'll come get you. You'll be safe. And then you know what happens after that. Uh, The uh, Israelites come into Jericho. God gives them these strange (laughs) instructions. He says, this is what I want you to do. I I want for six days... I want you to line up like this. I want the men of valor, the army guys first. And then I want the seven priests with trumpets. And then I want the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, the little box. And then I want everybody else. And for six days, I want you to walk around the whole city. And while you're doing that, I want all the people to be quiet. And I want the uh, priests to be blowing the trumpets. And then on the seventh day, I want you to walk around the seven times. And on the seventh time around, after the priests are done blowing the trumpets, I want everybody to shout, and the city will be yours. I'm not a military guy, but that doesn't seem like a very good strategy. Uh, you know, it just doesn't, you know, doesn't seem like it would work. But by faith, trusting this was God who said this, they did it, and you know the outcome. It worked, and it worked so well that the people in, inside were, were confused, easily taken, 
everything, everyone was destroyed, except, of course, Rahab and her family. Now, what do we get from all this? I must confess that, especially when we consider these huge Things uh, it's hard for me to get a hold of, hard for me to hard for me to relate to. I I don't ever visualize myself being in a Red Sea situation. I don't ever see myself being in a Walls of Jericho situation. Um, and so I sort of feel like when I read these passages, like a student of mine when I was teaching economics came up to me after a senior level class in macroeconomics, and he said, "You know." If the job of being chairman of the Federal Reserve System ever opens up, I'm ready. But other than that, this class seems really impractical. (laughs) I think, yeah. If the job of Moses or Joshua ever pops up, I'm ready to go. Uh, Give me the rod, give me the sea, you know, give me the Egyptians, you know, give me the trumpets. We're ready to go. But, But other than that, I wonder, how is this going to really help us? Well, the scripture says in Romans in chapter 15, verse 4, this. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures of the scriptures we might have hope. So these stories, these events that are written down in Hebrews chapter eleven, must be there to give us hope. That is, to enable us to have deeper, stronger faith. For faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So the question then is, how do these incidents of faith On behalf of the Israelites, Rahab, how does that increase my hope, thus increase my faith? First this, I think it shows me, shows us, that faith is really powerful. Yes, it's faith in God and the power source is God, it's God. But but think of this, that when we live by faith, we're living by God, right? We live by faith, we're living by God. We're living off of, from, in him. And thus, we're connected, we're united with him by faith. And so, he is at work on our behalf. That's why Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's the power you see of faith. When I'm living by faith, we're living in the very power of God. Now, I can't guarantee, I can't say exactly how that's going to work out in the context of our lives. In fact, next week, we're going to talk about people who were um, lived by faith and who were sawn in half. A little different outcome. So what you call being beside yourself. But, but, they still lived by faith in the context of the power of God. We'll see how it is that God fought for them in the midst of a circumstance, even though some were tortured, some were persecuted, some were sawn in half, as the author of Hebrews says. Faith is powerful. So then I have to ask myself the question, what's the most important thing for me? What's the most important characteristic that I should have? What should characterize my life more than anything else And the answer would be faith. Faith in Christ. And then I look at the context of my life and I say, but but, 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 but what really does characterize my life? Is that it? Is that the thing that I spend my time, my energies, my passions developing in me? Or is it other pursuits? Is it other interests? Is it other things? 
Not that these other things are necessarily bad, but am I pursuing them by faith? And is this faith the most important quality of, of my life? Do I realize that my security is not uh, in my social standing? It isn't in my economic standing. It isn't by way of my education. It isn't by way of my position. It isn't by way of my nationality. It isn't by way of my family. It isn't by way of the church I'm attached to. It isn't by my looks. It isn't by my health. It isn't by any of those things. That's not what gives me strength. That's not what provides security for me. Because, you see, God will always take us places where we're utterly and completely helpless. He'll take us all places at various times in our life when our money won't do it, when our education won't do it, where our connections won't do it, where being an American won't do it. We're just hopeless, helpless apart from him. And there we are. And again, as I said a few weeks ago, it's not that God makes us weak. It's he simply exposes our weakness. All kinds of things come against us. Spiritual kinds of things come against us. Physical kinds of things come against us. You know, when you've got cancer and the doctor says, there's nothing we can do about that, you're at that place. When you're in a relationship and the person you're in that relationship with doesn't want to be in that relationship with any, there's nothing you can do about it. Whether it's a spouse or a child or a parent or a friend, there you are in that place. You realize that nothing I have at this moment is going to be able to get that back. When you're in the midst of a situation where where a temptation is coming against you and you simply are powerless before it, you know that you succumb to that anger or that gossip or that lust or whatever it happens to be easily and all the time. And there you are before it and you, you just know that if you haven't already done it, you're going to. And if it isn't now, it's going to be in five minutes. If it's not then, it's going to be in ten. If it's not ten, it's going to be tomorrow. And there you find yourself right in that very spot and you can't buy your way out and you can't run from it physically and none of your friends can really help at that point in time and there you are God takes us to those places he says what you now need is faith in me I'll fight for you trust me walk with me and sometimes he gives us the strangest instructions He says things like, when you've been hurt, forgive. When you've been insulted, don't take vengeance. Turn the other cheek. When you've been cussed at, bless them. When enemies come against you to persecute you, pray for them. When your enemies line up against you, love them. And we say, how's that going to work? And he says, remember the time Jericho fell. It didn't make much sense to walk and to blow trumpets. Didn't seem like that was the best military strategy. But trust me, live like this in faith and you'll triumph. 
One of the wonderful things I like about being part of a church and being part of the mission of a church is that our mission is utterly impossible. This is clearly mission impossible. What God's doing, you see, in the life of Christians when he gives us the missions to win to all the world and, and preach the gospel and make disciples and baptize and all of that, that's mission impossible. He's saying, listen, I, I want to give you a hint about the people who are just like you. They're dead <laughs> in trespasses and sins. And what I want you to do is convert them, you know, teach them, disciple them, baptize them, all that stuff in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you see, that's completely impossible. There's no time we're weaker than when we're talking to people about Jesus. Our money can't buy them in, can't pay enough. The whole system of indulgences doesn't work. <laughs> you can give as much money to the church. I really wish it worked a little. We could have a sanctuary by now. Uh, but it just doesn't, you know, just, I, can't, I just can't go there. It just doesn't, not going to work. You can't, they, you can't buy them in. They can't buy themselves in. Their looks can't get them in. Their social standing can't get them in. None of that that they have can get them in. The Apostle Paul recognized that, you remember, in the course of his life. And he says, all these things that were mine, I now count as loss. I realized that my upbringing couldn't get me in. I realized that my education couldn't get me in. I realized that my social standing couldn't get me in. My religious standing couldn't get me in. The, 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 the view that religious people had of me couldn't get me in. I was completely weak and helpless and hopeless uh, uh, myself. And, 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 and all we have is this word, the gospel, to tell people about Jesus. That's it. So you're standing in front of a dead person, spiritually speaking, and you tell them about Jesus. That's all we have. But amazingly, there are times when the waters part. There are times when the walls fall down. And we see it. That's why I've said zillions of times that our ministry rises and falls on the power of God's word working by his spirit to change people's lives. And if that doesn't work, we're sunk. We don't have a plan B. There's no other way to do this. That's all we have. And we're utterly and completely at the mercy of God. He's got to move. He's got to work. There's no way you and I can be eloquent enough or smart enough or articulate enough or argumentative enough or good enough debaters or any of that. It needs work the power of God. And every time we do it and every time we're involved in it and as we try to build a church in this community and all of that, that's where we stand. And so the word to us is to live by faith and see the salvation of God. See, the great thing that comes for me out of all this that I think is a great corrective in my own life and personality is to live expectantly, to live anticipating that God's going to be true to his words. He's going to be faithful to what he said. And, and, and to look for these things, look for glimpses of all this happening. Don't be afraid. Stay firm to see the salvation of the Lord. To live with that buzz, to live with that expectancy, to think, how's he going to do this? How's he going to get us out of this? How's he going to deliver us here? How's he going to make this work? How is he going to, 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 to move in such a way that the end result is that people turn around and say, God is great. Let's pray. Father, be with us. Increase our faith. Strengthen our faith. 
in the midst of all those places where we feel the weakest and the most faithless, I pray that you would enable us to trust you so we would see your greatness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.